It's my honor and privilege this afternoon to introduce this year's commencement speaker, uh, Dr. Brian Fickert. Dr. Fickert is the founder and president of the Chalmers Center for Economic Development at Covenant College, where he also serves as a professor of economics and community development. He earned his PhD in economics with highest honors from Yale University and a BA in mathematics from Dort College. Specializing in economic development and international economics, Brian has produced numerous academic and popular publications and is the co-author of several books, including when Helping Hurts, How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor and Yourself, Helping Without Hurting in Short-Term Missions, and From Dependence to Dignity, How to Alleviate Poverty Through Church-Centered Microfinance. Prior to coming to Covenant College, he was a professor at the University of Maryland and a research fellow at the Center for Institutional Reform and the Informal Sector. Brian and his family have been active members at New City Fellowship for 20 years. Brian and Jill's oldest daughter, Jessica, graduated from Covenant in 2016 and is now pursuing an MDiv at Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis. Their son, Josh, is a junior at Covenant and is double majoring in community, community development and philosophy slash religion. Their daughter, Anna, is a junior at Chattanooga Christian School and plans to attend Covenant College after graduation. Would you please welcome Dr. Brian Fickert. It's a great honor to be asked to address you today clothed in a very long robe that adds about two feet to one's height. I assure you this is all an optical illusion. I'm really only five feet tall. As you know, the world is changing very rapidly, so much so that the center of Christianity has moved from the West to the majority world of Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And within those continents, the church is growing most rapidly, not amongst the elites, but amongst the poorest people on the planet. Indeed, as historian Philip Jenkins has noted, the typical Christian in the 21st century is not a businessman attending a megachurch in, in an American suburb, but rather the typical Christian in the 21st century is a poor woman living in a village in rural Nigeria or a poor woman living in a slum in Sao Paulo, Brazil. People of God, the Great Commission has been given to the church, and in the 21st century, the Great Commission will largely be advanced by very poor churches bringing the gospel to other very poor people. And so graduates, as we consider your future, I thought we could take a moment and try to learn a few lessons from those who are on the very front lines of the advancement of the gospel. Very poor people in very poor churches, because they have some things to teach us, I think. This is a picture of a church in rural Kenya that is comprised of members of the Maasai tribe, including these women. Now the Maasai are a semi-nomadic tribe in East Africa that has many wonderful qualities. They have beautiful song and dance. They have colorful clothing and jewelry. And they love tending cattle. In fact, they believe that all the cattle in the world are actually theirs. But like all cultures, the Maasai culture has some negative qualities as well. For example, it would not be easy to be a woman in the Maasai tribe, for the women are trapped in a cultural narrative and, a, and an associated set of practices that have shaped them into something less than what God intends for human beings as his image bearers. You see, in the Maasai tribe, 
the narrative is that women are inferior to men, a narrative that is reinforced through a series of cultural practices. The men practice polygamy, they subject the women to backbreaking work and female genital mutilation, and to low levels of education. Now, a number of years ago, the Department of Economics and Community Development at Covenant College launched the Chalmers Center, a church-equipping organization that wanted to help churches to help poor people like this. We wanted to help the poor to be able to work and to support themselves through their own work. But when we came to the site, we had a problem because there were not enough jobs in Kenya to employ these women. So they had to become self-employed in their own small businesses, their own microenterprises. And that led to another problem. You see, there were no banks to lend these women money, so they couldn't get the capital that they needed to start their own small businesses. And so what we did is we helped this church to help these women to form a very small, very kind of primitive credit union in which they come together and they save and lend their own money to one another. And it was working by God's grace alone. They were highly productive. Just off the, off the side of the picture uh, is a pickup truck. And I asked these women, who gave you that pickup truck? And they said, nobody gave us this pickup truck. We saved our money in our credit union. We made loans to each other. We purchased livestock. We raised the livestock. We sold them in the marketplace. We made a big profit. We poured our profits back into our credit union. We made more loans. We bought more livestock. We bought more cattle. We made more profits. It went on and on and on. We had so many profits, we bought ourselves a pickup truck. We used the pickup truck to transport more cattle to the marketplace. I was so impressed with their creativity and their entrepreneurship, and I said to them, what do your children think of you? And they said, our children think that mommy's a rock star. I might be paraphrasing a little bit. And I said, what do your husbands think of you? And they said, our husbands didn't know who we were. Our husbands didn't know that Maasai women could do all of these activities, and they're thrilled to find out because we're bringing home lots of money and helping our families to flourish. I got up to leave, but this lady told me to sit down. She looked a little bit scary, so I sat down. She said, I'm a pure Maasai. Some Maasai women look at all of my business activities and they wonder if I'm a pure Maasai. They do not believe that Maasai women can do all of these things. I am a pure Maasai, but I'm also born again. My prayer is to go way into the interior regions and to tell the Maasai fathers, way, way, way in the interior regions, who their little girls are, image bearers of God Almighty. Because I want those fathers to put their little girls in school so they can be empowered to become just like us. To become just like us. Born again, pure Messiah. There's a tremendous amount of theology in this woman's words, born again, pure Messiah. And it's this theology that the West desperately needs to hear. Let's start with the born again part. You see, this woman understands being born again as a comprehensive transformation of her entire personhood, affecting every square inch of her life, right down to her business practices. Now, this understanding of Christ's salvation as comprehensive is a message that the church in the West desperately needs to hear. You see, too often the church has reduced Christ's work to solving our legal problems before a holy and righteous God. Indeed, for many of us, the work of Jesus Christ sounds something like this. We have sinned against a holy God, and we deserve eternal punishment. 
And Christ's death and resurrection pay the penalty for our sins. And if we trust in Jesus, our sins will be forgiven. And we can go to heaven someday. And we can continue on our merry way right now, pursuing the American dream. Now, there is no doubt that Christ solves our legal problem. The Bible teaches that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that the wages of sin are death. But solving our legal problem is not the whole story of what Christ is doing for us. As this Messiah woman understood, Christ liberates our entire being from all that prevents us from experiencing humanness. Indeed, Christ was liberating this woman's entire personhood, both body and soul, from the devastating impacts of both her personal sins and from oppressive cultural narratives and practices. Indeed, because Christ's liberation of our entire being is so dramatic, the Bible refers to it as being born again into a distinctively new type of creature, a new kind of thing altogether, a creature, who, a creature whose personhood is being transformed into the very likeness of Jesus Christ. Folks, we are becoming more and more like the very person of Jesus. This isn't just a legal thing. It's a fully embodied human flourishing thing. In this, in this light, the Christian life consists of more than just enjoying our time here, and then when we die, our souls get beamed up into heaven, and we float around in some kind of ghost-like disembodied state, playing harps for all eternity. That sounds so horrible. I don't even like harp music, and I don't want to go to that place. I want to be me there, only better. And I want you to be you there, only better. And this gets to the second part of the Messiah woman's statement. She said with great pride, I am born again, but I am also a full-blooded Messiah. You see, being born again into this new type of creature doesn't erase her identity and her personhood. She still wears Messiah clothing and jewelry. She still engages in Messiah's song and dance. She still raises livestock but as a born-again Messiah, she now does so as an act of worship to God Almighty and with greater hope and joy and dignity than she's ever experienced before. Christ is not destroying her identity, her personhood, and her culture. Rather, he is redeeming it along with the rest of creation so that she is becoming more fully and truly Messiah than she has ever been before. As theologian J. Todd Billings puts it so beautifully, when the Spirit leads us back into communion with God, we do not lose our true selves, we regain them. Our new self in Christ, which comes forth to us from the future, is our true self. Let me repeat that. Our new self in Christ, which comes forth from the future, is our true self. Friends, we don't know exactly what the new heavens and new earth will be like. But we do know this, we will be more fully who we are than ever before. I imagine that Dr. Dr. Matawame will be more fully whatever it means to be a Nigerian, Swedish, Canadian, British, American with way too much education. In fact, we might even call him Dr. 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 there. And Professor Chris Dodson and as many students from 35 years of faithful teaching will be more fully accountants there than ever before, spending eternity counting up the value of all the gold that lines the streets 
of the New Jerusalem. And although her Texan accent will be burned up in a purifying fire, some things are simply not redeemable. Dr. Nola Stevens will be all that a four-foot-two linguist can possibly be as she diagrams the sentences of people from every tongue and tribe and nation for all eternity. Now, what does all of this have to do with you, graduates? Well, like the Messiah, you have been profoundly shaped by our culture's narratives and practices in ways that have produced what many experts consider to be a distinct generation, the millennials. Now, I hesitate to say anything about the millennials because one thing that's generally true about the millennials is that they hate it when there's any generalizations made about them. I'm a social scientist. I make a living by making generalizations. Let me do my job. Many, of, many experts have, have observed that the heart of the millennial generation is a set of cultural narratives and practices that elevate the autonomous self. Viewed in this light, the millennials are just a natural outworking of long-term trends in American culture, a culture that has been fiercely independent, emphasizing personal identity and freedom. Indeed, in many ways, the millennials are just the rest of us, only more. Now, there's many ways that this focus on the self finds its expression in the millennial generation. Oftentimes, a loss of belief in absolute truth or in any authority higher than oneself rampant materialism, a never-ending quest for self-expression that can degenerate into narcissism, a theme captured so aptly by that hit song, hashtag selfie. Yes, I've watched the YouTube video. That song, like Professor Stevens' accent, will definitely not make it into the new heavens and new earth. And in the religious domain, the focus on self has resulted in what, in what sociologist Christian Smith refers to as moralistic therapeutic deism, a view that God is detached, that he's far away, that he's uninvolved in the affairs of our everyday lives, except for when we have a personal need that needs to be met, in which case we can call upon him like some sort of divine butler to meet those needs. Now, like the narratives and practices of the Maasai culture, the narratives and practices of the millennial culture can be highly destructive. To take just one example, there's been an explosion of anxiety, depression, and mental illness amongst America's youth. Seeking to uncover the root causes of this uh, uh, mental illness, a team of scientists was recently gathered at Dartmouth Medical School. They were asked to answer the question, why are America's youth experiencing so much mental illness? They gathered the leading scientists in the country. They looked at the leading evidence, much of it from the field of neuroscience, and they, co they concluded the following. The human being is not wired to be an autonomous self. Rather, the human being is wired for relationship. And there's a breakdown in two key relationships for America's youth that are contributing to their mental illness. The first is a breakdown in relationship with others, especially older adults. And secondly, a breakdown in, in a relationship with a higher power, what some people would call God. And what is the solution to this breakdown in relationships? Listen to the solution of secular scientists. They argue that what we need to do is to form authoritative communities. An authoritative community, listen, is a community in which people come together across generations. The older folks disciple the younger folks 
in a belief in a higher power and an absolute truth. Folks, an authoritative community is what we call the church. Friends, we all need liberation. The Messiah need liberation. The millennials need uh, liberation. The baby boomers need liberation. We all need it. Of our entire beings, our minds, our heart, our actions, our wills, our bodies, our relationships, from the devastating ravages of our personal sins and from oppressive cultural practices and narratives. The good news is that Jesus Christ is in the liberation business. His response to global poverty, his response to HIV AIDS, his response to the oppression of women, his response to little girls being sold into brothels, and his response to a hashtag selfie culture isn't one of indifference, and it's not limited to solving our legal problems. Rather, his response is to transform the entire cosmos, including our entire personhoods, liberating us from our idolatrous hearts and from cultural narratives and practices that enslave us. Where can we find Christ and his liberation? In contrast to the teachings of moralistic therapeutic deism, God is not far away and uninvolved. On the contrary, he is present in this world and he is very engaged. In fact, he actually dwells in the here and now in that institution that millennials are abandoning in droves, the local church. Indeed, the book of Ephesians teaches that the local church is the body and bride and very fullness of Jesus Christ himself. And as she fulfills her ordinary tasks of preaching the word, of administering the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, of prayer and of fellowship, Christ is mysteriously yet actually and really present, not just with you, but in you. Indeed, the Bible teaches that believers are organically connected to Jesus Christ in the same way that branches are connected to a vine. And as the vine, he nourishes us through the primary means that he's established for such nourishment, the narratives and practices of the local church. Indeed, our new natures need such nourishment because our old natures die hard as they rail against this liberating process. Graduates, many of you are frustrated with the local church. I am too, at levels that you cannot begin to imagine. But your trust is not in her. Your trust is in the one who has bound himself to her. And he has promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against her. So you cling to her, warts and all. And as you do so, you'll be clinging to the very person of Jesus Christ himself, And as you do that, liberation will really happen for you. For as Paul tells the church in Ephesus, the same power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavenly realms far above all rulers and authorities and powers and dominions is at work in you. Hashtag resurrection power. Hashtag raised up with Christ. Hashtag transformed into his likeness. Hashtag Christ in you, the hope of glory. And dear graduates, we already see this happening in you. Christ is really working in you. We see it in you every day. Christ is bursting forth in and through you. We see young people who are forsaking self-centered materialism, who are denying themselves to live for Christ, who are loving on each other, who are loving on a bunch of old professors, including me. And as Christ bursts forth in you, 
we see some of the most wonderful and godly gifts of the millennial generation bursting forth. We see your embracing and inclusive posture towards others. We see your deep desire for authentic relationships. We see your passion for social justice. We see your innovative spirit that expresses the kingdom of God in all sorts of new and creative ways. Indeed, Christ is redeeming all things, including some of the most wonderful qualities of the millennial generation. And with Paul, I'm completely sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, I am sure that one day you will stand next to that Messiah woman in the new heavens and new earth. And as she looks on with wonder and amazement at the iPhone in your hand, you will greet her saying, hey, my name is Dorit, or my name is Cy, or my name is Emma, or Greer, or Haley, or Victoria. I'm a millennial. Some millennials look at me and wonder if I'm really a millennial because they don't believe that a millennial could do all the things that I do. Actually, I'm a full-blooded millennial, but I'm also born again. Hashtag come quickly, Lord Jesus.